Hello, everybody. This is Volts for June 29th, 2022. Volts podcast, Charles Marone on unsustainable suburbs. I am your host, David Roberts. Charles Marone, or Chuck to his friends, grew up in a small town in Minnesota and later became an urban planner and a traffic engineer in the state. After a few years, he began noticing that the projects he was building were hurting the towns he was putting them in, subtracting more tax value than they added, forcing everyone into cars, breaking apart communities, and saddling them with unsustainable long-term liabilities. He began recording his observations on a blog called Strong Towns. It quickly caught on, and over the years, Strong Towns has grown into a full-fledged nonprofit with an educational curriculum, an awards program, and a rich network of local chapters working to improve the towns where they are located. Marone has since written several books, most recently 2021's Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, and 2019's Strong Towns. Intellectually, he sits somewhat orthogonally to most of the contemporary urbanist community. He's an avowed conservative and opposes many of the state and federal solutions to the housing crisis favored by today's Yimbies. But there is arguably no one alive in America who has done more to get people thinking about what makes for a healthy community and how the U.S. can begin to repair its abysmal late 20th century land use choices. I was excited to talk to Marone about why suburbs are money losers, the right way to think about NIMBYs and local control, and why the city planning profession is so resistant to reform. Okie doke. Without any further ado, Chuck Marone of Strong Towns, welcome to Volts. Thanks for coming. Hey, thanks for having me. This is really cool. I've been sort of a follower of Strong Towns for many, many years. It's, it's great to finally get you on here. Uh, I wish we could be talking under more pleasant circumstances. Oh, yeah. You got you to gotta always have some joy and optimism to things. <sighs> I'm trying. Before we, before we get into any of that stuff, I am sure this is something you've talked about a million times, but I still don't know that it's sunk into the sort of general public. So let's just summarize real quick, right off the bat, the core of the Strong Town's critique of suburbs, the sort of Ponzi scheme critique, because I think still to this day, it probably comes as a surprise to most average Americans, just the idea that suburbs don't pay for themselves. Yeah. But I just don't think most people know it. So just let's just review that real quick. It's astounding, though, because we've come a long ways because it's now, uh, you know, I, I see when people bring up what is kind of like an ignorant statement of like, I pay my taxes like this stuff is <laughs> this stuff is paying. People are like, whoa, hang on. Let me show you something. So when I was a young engineer and planner, I have a civil engineering degree. I have a, a planning degree. I was building all this stuff to make cities really successful. I was putting in roads and streets and pipes and building Walmart parking lots and uh, Arby's <laughs> drive-thrus and every architect's dream as a child. Oh yeah. No, this was this was great stuff. And and I believed like in my heart that I was making the city that I live in, the city that I grew up in, wealthier and more prosperous. But over and over and over again, 
I would be exposed to these insane projects, these projects that if you're an engineer, you kind of work in a silo of design. If you're a planner, you kind of work in a silo of regulation. But when you do both, you wind up with this left brain, right brain conflict <sighs> that makes you ask like weird questions. And, and that's what I was doing. I was asking questions like, okay, this is going to cost us a million dollars. How long will it take us to recoup that with the tax base that we get? And I would run these numbers and it would be insane things like 120 years, you know, and, and it's like, okay, either I'm calculating this wrong or something's really messed up. And I started just doing this over and over and over again with all these different developments that I had worked on. And uh, in 2008, I started to publish this stuff. I started to write a blog and I'd share this stuff. And quite frankly, I was open to the idea that maybe I was crazy, right? Like <laughs> there's got to be something I'm not seeing because there's a lot of smart people doing this work. I can't be the only one asking this question. But it turns out, like, I was the only one really asking this question. Or th there were others, but they were disparate voices, either from the past or, or, or silent. And we started to build at Strong Towns. Myself and, and some of my colleagues and friends started to build this body of insight, this body of evidence that at, at a certain point just became undeniable. And the, the undeniable nature of it is that when you build in the suburban pattern, we call the auto-oriented pattern development because we certainly find this style of development within urban areas too, right? We tear down stuff and, and, and rebuild it in a suburban style. When you see this style of development, what we find is that it generates, from a cash flow standpoint, a lot of immediate cash. The quintessential example is we get a developer to come in and put in the pipe and put in the road and put in the sidewalks and build all the infrastructure and then gift it to the city. Mm -hmm. And the city then gets all the tax base, all the revenue, all the money coming in from this without having to spend anything up front. So from a cash flow standpoint, the city is way ahead, way ahead in year one, way ahead in year two, way ahead in year three. But the, the problem with this transaction is that the city then agrees to take on the long-term liability. We will go out and maintain that road. We will go out and maintain that pipe. And of course, they do this on behalf of the public, right? So we all collectively together get cash today in exchange for a long-term promise that we have to make good on in the future. If you compare those two things, if you add up all the cash and you compare it to the, uh, the ultimate amount we have to expend in this style of development, the post-war style of development, the style of the first ring, second ring, third ring, exurbs, the style that we've redeveloped the internal core of many of our cities around, it's not just functionally insolvent, it's bizarrely insolvent. It creates a dime or two of revenue for every dollar of expense it generates. It literally is a wealth-destroying kind of growth machine. <laughs> and yeah, you know, I, I think the difficulty in perception is that we can all see that cities that are growing fast are shiny and new and look better and are doing better than the cities that are stagnant or declining. Right. We can all see that. We can all see that those cities have bigger budgets and, you know, fancier stuff. And you know, while all of us hopefully live multiple generations or multiple decades, keeping track of that kind of slope of decline or uh, ascension over that period of time and, and, and coming to grips with it is just not something the human mind is set up to do. So I'm a little bit sympathetic to the culture and why the culture has bought into this. I'm really hard on professionals who have calculators and pencils and notepads. <laughs> 
Right, right. Well, you make the point that, you know, you have to bring in this new cash to cover the old stuff. Yes. And then even more cash to cover the old, old stuff. So only as long as you're building new suburbs are you staying ahead of the game. You have to grow at accelerating rates. Right. And that is, you know, uh, people objected to my use of the term Ponzi scheme. <laughs> like early on at Strong Towns, that was a big fight we had. People would come to our site and they'd be like, how dare you say Ponzi scheme? Oh, funny. Because they assumed that like anyone who runs a Ponzi scheme is nefarious, you know, is trying to do something evil. And I actually think the psychology of a Ponzi scheme is a lot more human than that, right? Oh, yeah. There are lots of examples that just got to grow, got to grow. And if you slow down growing, it all starts to fall apart. I mean, that's a fairly common dynamic. I I don't blame the people who hate Bernie Madoff for losing all their money, right? Like, I get that. (laughs) But I think if you actually look at Bernie Madoff's story, he felt pressure to show earnings. And so he fudged a little bit. And then fudging a little bit one year kind of forced him to fudge a little bit more the next year. And that forced him to fudge a little bit more next year. And all of a sudden, there was never a point where you could reckon with how out of alignment things were. You had to just kind of pretend that this Ponzi scheme would work itself out. And when you saw like interviews with Madoff, they asked him like, how do you feel? And part of his feeling was, I feel relief. (laughs) Right. You know? Right. Not running to stay ahead uh, anymore. Exactly. Well, one of the things, I mean, it's one thing to point to this style of development and its intrinsic sort of unsustainability and say, well, that's bad, but I can understand why some places do it. But the situation in the U.S. seems to be that it has become utterly hegemonic. Utterly. Like I I was struck, you know, I'm from Tennessee originally, and, and a few years ago, we had occasion to sort of drive down from DC down through uh, to Tennessee, you know, all these sort of rural highways. And you go to these small towns, you know, that have maybe like 10, 15, whatever, 20,000 people. And even there you get the four lane strip with the big box stores surrounded by lifeless single family home suburbs. Like even there, it's the same model. Inside our cities, in the exurbs, in the small towns, this bizarre, utterly sort of like unpleasant, it's just not pleasant to be in, yeah. style has become utterly hegemonic in the U.S. And that's just baffling. It seems like it requires some sort of explanation. You were in that profession. How does that happen? Because what you discovered is not, you know, it doesn't take that much of a, of a cognitive leap to, to see it. No, And yet right. here it is hegemonic and no one, virtually no one else is objecting to it. And you started objecting to it 20 years ago and it's still going on. What the hell? What, what is the source of this grip that it's got? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's, it has led me to actually over the last decade spending more time studying human psychology and human yes, behavior. right, right than anything. And people, people are like, have you read this planning book? And I'm like, no, I haven't read a planning book in a decade. Like, I, you know, have you read this new Kahneman book? Like I'm, <laughs> I'm really, <laughs> right. because that's where the answer comes in, right? Like right. why do, so let me simplify this down. Why do people smoke? Um, why do people who are diagnosed as pre-diabetic continue to eat sugar? Why do people who have a history of heart disease in their family eat fatty foods and things that, you know, lead to heart attacks. These are questions where I think if you are not 
participating in that. You know, we all have something like this, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. the great findings of Daniel Kahneman, the cognitive psychologist. Like we humans do irrational things. And we rationalize them and pretend that we're different or we understand why or we're in control. <laughs> um, but the reality is, is that we uh, have a, a fast reaction, a gut reaction, a impulse on how we do things. System one. System one. And then system two rationalizes it after the fact. So I know that I need to eat healthier but there's a bowl of ice cream that my kid is having and she offered me one and I'd be really antisocial if I didn't. So I will eat healthier tomorrow. And now it's tomorrow and, um, you know, I'm at work and there's a pile of donuts and it's kind of be, you know, like I can have one, like it's not a big deal. We are really, really good at rationalizing each individual step of our own decline and demise. And <laughs> that's a, that's not a, a, a commentary on like the darkness of humanity. I think that, you know, there's good, like, cognitive reasons why humans, as they were evolving out of hunter-gatherer societies, or even go back further, you know, evolving out of uh, uh, chimpanzees and, you know, primates and and mammals, why this kind of instant gratification, you know, gene, in a sense, is embedded in our DNA. Very true for individuals. I think everybody immediately recognizes that as individuals. But, but you would think one of the reasons we build institutions or one of the reasons we build expertise among groups of people is that we're supposed to be able to watch over, watch over one another's shoulders, right. And check one another so that we can check that error collectively. Uh But instead here we have the entire profession acting basically like the diabetic individual eating cake. Like, okay, but here's what you said. We have institutions to, in a sense, check our avarice, right? Check our worst human behaviors. Totally agree. This is also why we destroy institutions from time to time, because we, as humans, feel constrained by them. We feel (laughs) uh, as if our avarice or our impulse is being constrained, you know, improperly. And you can, I mean, I, I tend to be a little bit on the conservative side of things. I mean, I'm a small town guy from a rural area, I've grown to understand the the yin and yang of left and right and really appreciate the dichotomy and the roles that people who are pushing boundaries versus people who are trying to cling to institutions and, and ways of being. Like I, I get the tension and I actually appreciate the tension, but it just, I think, shows that the suburban experiment cannot be understood in any other way than a progressive attempt to reshape the continent around a new set of ideas. It is a destruction of a certain way of life in order to create whole cloth, something that would be better. And it just so happens that in our political framework, the mechanism of doing that became, in a sense, the Republican mechanism, right? Like we're going to recreate this around a model of big business and big top-down corporations and big top-down institutions. So there's something for everybody, right? (laughs) Well, let's talk about, rather than the dysfunctions of uh, the the planning and and civil engineering uh, professions, let's just at least briefly talk about when you talk about a strong town, you know, the sort of model that's been lost in, in the car era, you know, presumably physical layout has a lot to do with that, but that's not everything. So sort of what are the kind of elements of a strong town that you are trying to recapture through this movement? That's a 
It's a great question. And I, I think that when we go back to um, the early days before I started writing, when I was trying to when I was trying to get my mind around this problem and trying to come up with like, well, what what does this problem mean and what do we do? I gravitated to the the new urbanists because mm-hmm. the the new urbanism is a collection of people who have, in a sense, gone back and tried to understand why do cities of the past work and why do cities of today not work? And they do things like go out and measure sidewalks and street widths and mm-hmm. and, and all this. And there was a central argument, and I. I'm going to caricature the new urbanism. I love these people. I have a deep respect for them. But I think, you know, there have been things that they have evolved on over time. And I I think one of the things that has been evolving is this insight that if you just get the design right, everything else will take care of itself, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you just build the human habitat in the right way, the humans will respond. And anyone who's ever been to Baltimore, which is one of the most beautifully designed cities in America, uh, will recognize that that's simply not true, right? There's a deeper interaction there. I think that we have to recognize that at the end of World War II, we were, as a, as a nation, in this very unique position. We had just gone through the Depression. We had just gone through, you know, if you're a bean counter in Washington, D.C., we got out of the Depression by starting, you're joining a global war, we were demobilizing millions of troops. We were shutting down industries with millions of jobs. There was a sense that we were just going to go right back into the depths of the depression. And instead, we took these complex adaptive human habitats that had evolved and shifted and been very bottom up for thousands of years. And we said, we're going to take all of this capacity, all this industrial might. We, we had more oil in Saudi Arabia at this mm-hmm. point. We had the world's reserve currency. We had all the gold. We had this culture that was united. We're going to take all of this capacity we have, and we're going to direct it into this new project of building a new version of America. And that means we got to build quickly, which means we have to standardize. We got to have standard road sections, standard street sections, standard housing forms, standard uh, zoning classifications, standard building styles and types. And we have to repeat this process over and over and over and over again. And if we can do that, it will create enough energy in our economy to not only lift us out of depression and keep us out of depression, but make our country powerful and rich and wealthy and build a really strong middle class. And, you know, it worked. Well, yeah, as you note, yeah. as long as it's growing, <laughs> right? As long as you're ahead of the... Yeah. We learned that lesson really well, right? And so you even hear economists now today saying, well, what should we do, economists? And they'll say, build more infrastructure because that worked in the 1950s and the 1960s. It, it, it is long past diminishing returns and, and the economists don't understand that. We always talk about a strong town being more like diet and exercise than it is like being ripped, right? Mm. So we can look at like a weightlifter and be like, okay, you know, or someone who's like does a a ton of aerobics and be like, all right, this person is like in really great shape. If you look at cities, there's no cities that are ripped. There's no cities that are like in really (laughs) great shape, right? Um, And that's not, I mean, we've all been subjected to 70 years of this macroeconomic growth experiment. We're, We're all atrophied. We're all struggling. We're all insolvent. We're all in a mess. So strong towns, the idea is more like diet and exercise. How do you develop good habits and good practices that will allow your city to evolve, adapt, and grow stronger and more prosperous over time? 
So that's what we focus on. You know, how are you doing your budget? How are you doing your design? How are you doing your layout? How are you investing in transportation? What what does your approach look like in terms of developing capital projects? These are things we try to help people get a grip on and just think about them differently. I'm curious, like I want to think that there's a lot of that progress going on beneath the surface because one of the things that's most striking about all this is that the kind of critiques of car-based, you know, suburbia that you are talking about, you know, go way, way back. They go way back. And at this point, like at least among like my cohort, you know, whatever my demographic cohort, people like me, it's just like uh, conventional wisdom at this point. Like, of course it's bad. Like, of course, if you build more lanes, there's just going to be more traffic, you know, induced demand. Like, of course, if you build around cars, businesses will do worse because, you know, of course, more, more businesses get more business from pedestrians. Just like, stuff like that among my crowd has just been accepted. Yeah. And, and yet y- you lose every time. The zombie shuffles on uh-huh. still, <laughs> still, still, still. So like, who are these planners who haven't heard the news? <laughs> like, who are these traffic engineers who haven't yet been convinced by the evidence for induced demand? Like, who? what is the disconnect between this very well-established critique at this point and the zombie that seems unaffected by the critique just decade after decade? Right. I can't reconcile those, I guess. Did, did the people running Rome not recognize that, like, bread and circuses was a dead end? Of course they did. <laughs> Right. Like, of course they did. We, we, right. we look back and we're like incredulous. Like how would they have done this, something this stupid? And then we don't recognize that like we are human and trapped in the, the same kind of thing. Right. Let me put this point on it. At Strong Towns, we spend a, a tiny bit of time thinking about macro policy and how to change it. And I, I will take calls from congressmen from time to time and, and chat with them. And, and, you know, they're very pleasant and all that. But we don't have a program for that level. Like, I, I don't actually think there's – we just passed a bipartisan infrastructure bill that was a totally a, a disaster. Just <sighs> like if I could have written like a horrible bill, it would not have looked any different than this, right? This was a bad, bad, bad bill. And it was acclaimed. It was acclaimed by both parties. It was acclaimed by the national media. It was acclaimed, you know, on Main Street, I still travel around the country and people are talking about the infrastructure bill, you know, not all that much, but like, if they're going to say something positive, that's, they point to that. Well, the bar for success at the federal level is so low at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't, um, I don't think we should pretend that we are going to end the bread and circuses, Hmm. right? Like that's not the project that Strong Towns is trying to undertake. I think at Strong Towns, we, we have to understand that in a sense, the bread and circuses will end at some point. And that's going to be a really, really painful, painful experience. And when that painful experience comes to fruition, we need to have a project that not only is nascent, but is actually working in places. Like we need to have an alternate model that has some credibility, some success, some adherence, some people who are have worked out some of the kinks and are figuring out like, here's, here's a best practice for this. And here's a best practice for that. Because the alternative to that is going crazy as a society. (laughs) And we need, you know, we need something positive that we can do that will keep us from, from going crazy. 
that's a good segue into my next question then because um you know the whole strong times things to sort of reject grandiose top-down visions from both the right and the left in favor of this sort of bottom-up evolutionary incremental can i push back a tiny bit Sure. And then you continue your question. Sure. You said reject top-down vision. And I guess when I'm, you know, grand vision, I guess I want to say, I feel like I have, and I feel like so many people affiliated with Strong Towns have grand visions. What we reject is the grand sweeping action to achieve that vision, right? Mm. It's the fact that like, I have a grand vision of here's what my life is going to be. If I go out and like borrow a ton of money and just put myself in hawk and like achieve for one instant the thing that I was after, that's not really like attaining something, right? I, I, I want to build up to what success looks like. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So, so humble steps, top down imposed sweeping reforms then in yeah. favor of, uh, in favor of bottom up. But the, the sort of other side of that is at least in the, you know, current, urbanist, yimby, whatever you call it, community. When I hear bottom up, my first thought is NIMBYs. (laughs) My first thought is insofar as there is community involvement in a lot of these questions, it is almost always on the side of no, 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 build nothing, change nothing, keep this crappy system that we built because it's, you know, because it's sending my home values through the roof. Or, Or I also think of environmental review and just the the bureaucracy and just when i think local involvement that's where my mind goes is sort of wealthy boomers yeah (laughs) going to town meetings shouting at people who want to build bike lanes so how do i reconcile that sort of like bottom-up vision of yours with the sort of scourge of of nimbyism that seems to be what is actually happening bottom-up in cities yeah no, totally. I, I, I could not agree with your analysis more. L- let me give you a brief history of the 20th century as it goes with public engagement. So we get out of World War II, we start building all this stuff, and we empower engineers, and we empower planners, and we empower corporations to just build, 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 just keep going. Um, they actually had a plan at one point to use atomic bombs to build a highway through the Rocky Mountains. That, that's how much... <laughs> power we gave to engineers, right? I'm not joking. Like that was a legit plan that went through like, okay, we're going to do this. And uh, the next phase was, wait a sec, this is totally junk. Like we hate this. We don't like this at all. And then you have born out of that, all the kind of like environmental renaissance of the baby boomers, Mm -hmm. right? You get the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act and you get environmental reviews and you get NEPA, you get, you get all this stuff. And what that establishes is a process to go through to accomplish what you want to accomplish. And so in a sense, the baby boomer response to the process dysfunction of building suburbia was to attack it with more top-down process. And now we have, you know, you, you go to kind of the next iteration and the next iteration is to say, okay, this is all messed up. These processes are resulting in really bad things. We need, and I'm going to put in air, you know, superficial, I'm going to put in parentheses on the beginning of this. We need a superficial level of public engagement. We need the public to feel involved, feel listened to. And it's, it's almost like the participation trophy, right? For public <laughs> engagement. Like we need to, we need to have everybody feel like they're heard. 
Um, but again, like not results that we really want. We, we fight these things, we battle. But what this has done is it's empowered the, the NIMBY, the, the, the craziest person can show up with two of their friends and shout down the most sanest proposal. And, you know, the uh, investiture of time it takes to overcome that is just asymmetrical to what anyone would be willing to do given the limited upside. And of course, legendarily, in a lot of these decisions, the people who will benefit from them don't exist yet, right? Or don't live there yet. Like that's the whole point. Yeah. That it would bring new people. And they, and if, you, if you're not there yet, you can't very well show up to a meeting, right? Or even look at like something simple, like we're going to put in a new traffic light on this highway because Walmart wants to go here. And you're like, okay, well, what that is going to do is it's going to rob about 30 seconds a day from everybody who uses that highway. So 20,000 people who have invested for this highway capacity to get somewhere are now going to have 30 seconds of their day robbed. So over the course of a year, they're going to have three hours of their life robbed or whatever mm-hmm. that works out to be. And you know, over the course of a, of a decade, they're going to have a, a day and a half. All right. That is like a small bit of pain. How much time would you spend at a public meeting trying <laughs> right. to fight that? Right. You're not going to, right? Collectively, when we add up everybody together, it's a huge dramatic loss. But for each individual player who's negatively impacted, it does, it's not enough to justify your participation in the system. But for Walmart, the gain is enormous, right? They'll hire teams of attorneys and teams of mm-hmm. advocates to go and show up and say, we need to do this. And Classic, classic asymmetry, asymmetry here. Asymmetry, uh, right. And so you have this in many different realms, like the, the NIMBY who doesn't want something built in the house next to theirs can show up with four of their neighbors and shout down something. But the like 20 people who need a place to live you know, they're out at their job and they're out working and they're trying to, and, and, you know, the amount of time they would have to invest to actually make a difference is so huge and the potential upside so minimal. It's asymmetry. So the, the answer to this problem is not, you know, look back through history. It's not to empower the technical people more. That's one option on the table that we just need to get. Technocratic override. Yep. We need to get the oligarchy of technocrats in here to like run things for us because we're incapable. Option number two is that we create more process. This is the baby boomer reaction, like more process, more process, and we'll get better outcomes. Option three, we'll call this the Gen X option. I don't know if it is or not, but I'll (laughs) I'll claim it as my generation, is the idea that if we can have a lot of participation trophies and a lot of like theater of public engagement, that maybe we'll get some better ideas and people will certainly feel better about things. Or a a sheen of legitimacy. Right. The sheen of legitimacy. Um, the answer to it is the ancient practice of subsidiarity. The idea that decisions should be made at the level in which they can competently be made and no higher. And the, the role of every level is to either make the decision that is at their level or assist the levels below them in making a decision. I point often to the chicken problem. Backyard chickens, where should backyard chickens be regulated? Should they be regulated at the regional level, at the state level? <laughs> right. They're really, it's a block level decision. If I'm going to have chickens, that doesn't affect anybody except my neighbors. And so that decision should be one that neighbors make together. Now, people will say, well, Chuck, I, I don't like my neighbors. I don't get along with them. We fight. We, we, we disagree. 
okay, but you got to work this one out. Like that's not a decision you can allow other people to make for you. You have to, as a neighborhood, make that decision or as a, as a block. Well, geez, we just can't. We're at each other's throats. To me, that's where the role of the city comes in. The city says, all right, I can't make this decision for you. I could, but that would be wrong. And it would be a dummy standard applied to everybody. And we need local nuance. I can't make this decision before you, but what I can do is I can help you as a neighborhood reach a decision together. And, and if we had government that functioned like that, what we would find is that, you know, the regional rail project is not going to get derailed by, you know, one block of people who are rich enough to hire lawyers and create all kinds of process. That's a regional decision. It should be made by a regional government representing everybody. But the chicken thing is not going to get screwed up you know, or contrasting the big developer is not going to be able to come in, buy off the city council or, or mobilize whatever to shove the, uh, the eight-story condo unit down your throat. Well, but I guess the way I would object, to, well, not object, but, but my question is, it seems slightly question-begging since the whole point of contention here is, you know, if the decision is whether to put a bike lane in neighborhood X, is that like chickens? in that it mainly or only affects neighborhood X and therefore should be made at the level of neighborhood X? Or is it an infrastructure decision that affects the whole city and its transportation flow, in which case you make it at the city level? Or, you know, there's there's a lot of research lately showing that these local NIMBY decisions are creating a housing crisis, which is having macroeconomic effects on the entire country, which might suggest that that maybe the federal level is is the level for some of these decisions. So it, it, so it's not obvious to me what the right level is. And in a sense, that's the whole point of contention, is it not? No. Well, it it is in one sense because this is what politicians do, right? They're like, well, this thing affects everybody. And so, you know, the temperature you set your thermostat has to be decided in Washington, D.C. because it's a macro issue. <laughs> the, the, the answer is not, you know, to what degree does it affect everyone? The answer is at what level can this decision be made? And it should be made at the lowest level that it can be made. I think one of the problems that we confuse and one of the things we get up, our our minds wrapped around, is that we're so used to working at the wrong scale that it's, it's hard to reconcile the idea of subsidiarity with the kind of projects we do today. You brought up a bike lane. And a bike lane is like a very popular kind of project amongst a certain group of people because they're like, we need more biking and walking. I can tell you that almost every bike lane project I see is the wrong project for that community. There are very few where it's like the right project originated in the right way. And let me walk you through that just briefly. We have a thing at Strong Towns that we call the four-step process for public investments. And the core of this process it begins with going out and humbly observing where people struggle. A lot of times when we're looking at bike projects, they don't originate with a humble understanding of where people are having a difficult time using the city as it has been built. Where they generally start with is either someone at City Hall really likes bike lanes. (laughs) Uh, There's a grant out there for bike lane projects. We have a capital improvements plan and our, uh, our complete streets policy says we should put in bike lanes. Or some regional authority is like, we're trying to build a regional bike trail. You guys need to put in a connection. All of those are the wrong place to originate a project. When we originate projects based on where people are having a difficult time using the city, 
what we wind up doing is making projects that are actually scaled to the urgent demands of people on the ground. And those projects are not opposed. They, they have their own baked-in constituency. And the thing about those kind of projects is there's an endless number of them. And the implementation does look a lot more like subsidiarity. I don't know. I just, when I think about bike lane decisions being made at the neighborhood level, it's hard for me not to think that there would just never again be a bike lane. Yeah, I don't know. If, if we went out, I don't know the city you live in, but if we went out here where there's a lot of opposition to bike lanes, I mean, the, the last big bike lane project we put in went right in front of a Catholic church in town. And I, I go to the different Catholic church, but I've attended this one. I know the priests. I know the people there. The Catholic church was irate about it. And they were irate about it because it took away the place that they would park for funerals and weddings, right? Like right out in front, mm. like it took away this place. Um, it was a stupid bike lane project and no one ever bikes there. It's not a place where people bike. But what happened was they came up with a master bike lane plan, a master bike plan. They were redoing this street. This is phase one of implementation. And they said, you know, from a very top down kind of rote approach, this is where the bike lane goes. And what they did is they generated a ridiculous amount of opposition to bike lanes. My recommendation to them, this is my city now, was let's go out and see where people are biking right now. And then let's bike with them or follow them or, or talk to them and find out where, where you are biking right now is it most difficult? Where are you having the most struggle? I bike all the time. I can, you know, we can go out and do this. We can go out and like talk to people, show like crossing this bridge, really dangerous, crossing the street, really dangerous. What can we do to fix that? And the amazing thing about fixing that is that A, there's already people using it. They're just struggling. B, those people are adjacent to other people who would probably use it, but for the danger or the struggle. And so C, when you fix it, you not only have a built-in constituency who's needs you're responding to, but you have a, a related adjacent constituency that's going to come forth and affirm the thing that you did and the value that it provides. That's how you build a culture of biking and walking. And that's how you get bike lanes everywhere. And can you point to a place? I mean, Strongtown gives these awards. It runs these academies, yeah. tries to teach city leaders. So what's a you know, tell us a story of a town that is strong, that is, that is, that is doing things like that. That is ripped. <laughs> not, not yet ripped, but <laughs> on a, on a good, uh, health plan, let's say. Well, we, we have the annual strongest town contest, and that is really a celebration of places that are doing, uh, this kind of incremental work. Um, where the places that are doing the diet and exercise of building a strong town? And none of them are perfect. And we tell them, like, don't be ashamed to apply if you're not perfect because none of these cities are. <laughs> but, you know, we, we have tended to have this, like, long list of mid-sized towns where they are, and I'm going to generalize here, but I think this is generally true, where they are too poor to be stupid, but just, like, connected enough and coherent enough to grasp the need to work together. And those are places that are astounding. I mean, Pensacola uh, a few years ago. I'm going to Jasper, Indiana here in a couple of weeks. You know, these cities are places where they all have kind of the same problems everybody has, but have found unique ways to deal with them. But if you told me like, Chuck, I, okay, I was in Sacramento last week and the people who run the Council of Governments in Sacramento, it's this regional governance body. 
they go around and around to places and talk to people and they, you know, do like these retreats. So they're going to, as a group to Salt Lake City to learn from the people in Salt Lake mm-hmm. City. They have in the past gone to Amsterdam to learn from Amsterdam. And they listed these places that they've gone. And then they asked me, Chuck, where would you go? Uh, and I said, I'd go to Detroit. You know, like I, I would go to Memphis. I would go to Buffalo. I would go to Shreveport. I, I would go to Cleveland, Akron. These are places that you see the most innovation, the most entrepreneurial spirit, the most um, flexibility of thought. These are the places to me that are the most exciting. And get zero national attention. Oh, yeah. No, they get zero, right. But they're uninhibited by, you know, we went back and talked about that cultural expectation of the bread and circuses and all that. Like the bread and circuses are done in these places, you know. And so they're uninhibited by that hang up. And they can actually focus on doing great stuff. And these places struggle. I'm not going to pretend that you're going to walk in there and go, wow, this place is amazing. But if you scratch the patina a little bit and talk to some people and go to some neighborhoods, you're going to see story after story after story that will blow your mind that you could do in Sacramento, that you could do in an affluent place and see amazing success. Um, I want to get to politics, but there's one thing I wanted to hit before then. Yeah. And this is sort of, uh, you know, given, uh, what's going on as we are talking somewhat thematically, uh, appropriate question, but I wanted to ask what makes one, it seems like one of the key features of a good town, a good community is safety, a certain level of public safety. And I just wonder, um, you know, of all the sort of uh, reforms and things you look for and things Strong Towns rewards with its, you know, awards and whatnot, what kinds of things create safety? I was, you know, I was reminded recently of a, of a tweet thread where, <laughs> where this woman asked, like, what would you do if there was a curfew for men? If they had to be in by 10, what would you do? <laughs> and by far the most common answer was, I would love to go running at night. I've always wanted to go running at night and I just won't now because of safety. So right. I know I'm sure physical structure and, and design structure has something to do with that, but also there are other factors, community sort of. So what in the safety dimension, what makes a community safer? I'll give you the, the number one thing and it's, it's people, right? People make it dangerous and people make it safe. <laughs> I was able to spend some time in Southern Italy, which is a really amazing place, but also um, very poor. And there were a, a lot of places where the crowds and the, you know, the, the sheer number of people in these places were conducive to things like pickpockets and that kind of stuff. But not to rape, not to right. assault, not to, uh, you know, the things that you would, you would fear. There's a level of people less than that. The pickpocket part actually goes away too because you lose the, uh, you know, the thickness of the crowd in a sense. When we look at places that are great for biking and walking, uh, I think our affluent assumptions is that places that are great for biking and walking have great biking and walking infrastructure. And that's actually not true. The places that are the best for biking and walking have just the most people who bike and walk, <laughs> um, regardless of the infrastructure. So, you know, if you've got like crappy infrastructure, but there's tons of people walking all the time, that place becomes instantly way safer than anything else. Because, and I, I'm going to say this, and, and people may recoil at this, but 
most people are good. Most people are decent. You know, mm. we do bad things sometimes and, and sometimes we um, do things that will make you cringe. But the, the reality is, is that most culture is actually pretty good. We're pretty good to each other. And when we get people out together, um, that added security of having more people around you is what will keep you safe. This is a, a related insight to like Jane Jacobs' Eyes on the Street. Yeah, Eyes on the Street, I was just thinking. Yeah, but it's even, I think, a step beyond that. You know, Eyes on the Street recognizes that people don't want to get caught, right? Right. But I actually think there's a next step to that is that I think people are genuinely inclined to be their most lovely self when they feel like they are in an environment where other people are viewing them. Especially other people who are, again, going to be viewing them the next day and the next day, right? A community of people. Let, let me say it this way. People who matter to them, right? Right. And I, I think there's a, there's a way to go really dark with that because there's a way to, you know, have this be an insider versus outsider kind of thing. You know, humans are, I think, lovely and beautiful to each other. But a lot of that is a function of in-group versus out-group behavior. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in out-groups, we are not as lovely to each other. Yeah. The response to that has often been, well, then let's, you know, get police out there and let's regulate that. And let's, you know, uh, to me, the response in a healthy place is to just increase your in-group. Right. Right. Like expand your in-group. Social trust. It's yeah. the uh, bedrock of everything. Yeah. When you look at... Um, there's a fascinating book by Tim Carney, a conservative writer, and he looked at, um, basically he studied the 2016 presidential primary, and he was trying to make some insights on community. And so this was all Republicans, right? Places that voted Republican in the general election, so voted for Trump in the general election. But he wanted to know what places in the primary supported Trump and what places didn't? And of course, this can be broke down precinct by precinct. And he created a map around the country of, of what these places were and what they look like. And what he found is that the places that voted for Trump tended to have more crime. They tended to have more social isolation. Mm -hmm. They tended to have more people who identified as Christian but didn't go to church. <sighs> You know, there was, a, there was a bunch of things like that that you, you were really getting a measurement of what I would just say is like the end result of the suburban experiment, right? Like complete individual autonomy and social isolation from others. God, I, I, I think that's so true. And this is I, – I bring this up and people look at me like I'm crazy, but I really think the suburban model – the end product is to make people into psychopaths. <laughs> you you make it so that each lives in their individual castle. And the only way they interact with the community is as drivers. And as I'm sure you're well aware, nothing makes you more of an asshole more quickly right. than driving a car. So we, we've done studies on, not we strong towns, we humans, psychologists, <laughs> have done studies with rats and with monkeys and with you know chimpanzees and and. And we've looked at social isolation and the impacts of it. And it does not take much social isolation to make low, and I would say lower level, um, not homo sapiens, uh, completely neurotic. Right. It does not take much social isolation. Well, we have, we have built a development pattern where the marketing brochure is social isolation. Yes. Here's how we can help you facilitate you 
being the most antisocial person you can. Yeah. Here's how you can escape other people. Right. And this is the thing, like the, the safety thing. Like I've spent a lot of my life walking around suburbs because I I have dogs and I walk them frequently. And I, in Seattle, where I live, is chock full of suburbs. And the whole notion that they're safer has always struck me as bizarre. And as you say, it's about the density of people. When you're walking around suburbs, even healthy, wealthy suburbs in the middle of Seattle, you just don't see many people. You just and, and when you see one, it's like the two of you alone on a block. And there's something creepy about it. There's just something that's always felt unsafe about it. Even to me, you know, a, a sort of stocky white dude who's probably the safest, you know, the safest any human could be. It just doesn't feel even safe to me. I don't, I've never understood this idea that escaping away from other people makes you safer. I, I, I don't know why that's taken hold. Let me actually make this statement, which I think affirms what you're saying. Um, the most dangerous development pattern is the failing suburb. Right. Right. Because there you, you combine all of the neuroticism of social isolation with all the, the desperation of poverty. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see a lot more of those uh, in coming years. Oh my years. gosh, that, that's my nightmare. I mean, that's that's the thing that we, I think that is the thing that is going to define the 21st century is is dealing with that problem. Yikes. Because you, you isolate poor people in inner cities and it's a despotic thing, but you at least isolate them in coherent neighborhoods. I mean, neighborhoods where they can walk to get food right. and, and walk to a job and get on a bus and, and, and get somewhere to a doctor or what have you. You isolate the same demographic. You isolate poor people in America's second ring, third ring suburbs. And, you know, to, to me, you're talking, you're talking Mad Max. Yeah, that's very dystopian. Right, that's, <laughs> that's very dystopian. Let your mind let your mind run. Yeah. Well, I did want to ask you about this too. That I had so many things I wanted to talk to you about, and we're running out of time. But let me squeeze this one in too. I'm sure you've been asked a million times. Um, the sort of puzzle of how to build a good place, I feel like, is not solved. But I feel like we're just setting out to build a brand new place. We have a lot of good guidance and know a lot of things to do now. But of course. The big problem in America is all the suburbs already built along this crappy model spread out. You know, it can only get to them by car and they're there. Uh, What do we do with them? Is there, have you ever heard, I mean, I've had a lot of sort of urbanist-y kind of people on and I ask this question all the time and I've yet to hear a good answer, but what do we do with them? Are there... Do you know of ways to rehabilitate or densify or something to help your typical sort of windy, curly Q street exurb, you know, or is it just lost to us? Well, let's posit this. There are some brilliant people working on this problem. Ellen Dunham Jones, Galina Takieva, they've they've created Oh, I'm they're coming on the pod in a, in a few weeks. Okay, great. <laughs> they've they've made beautiful books and they show a brilliant architecturally how we make this transformation. And you'll look at them and you're like, this is genius work. The problem is that the work is misaligned with the culture and it's also out of scale it doesn't scale to the size of the problem. Mm. So I feel like there's insights from those books that we can use and adapt, but as a solution, it's, it's, suburban retrofit is not a solution. Mm. Because the reality is, you know, I, when I say 
we collect 10 cents, 20 cents on the dollar of what we need to maintain all this stuff. Right. The implications of that is that a lot of what we built will not be maintained. Yep. And so when we look at these places, we have to recognize that the goal of saving them all and retrofitting them all is, is the ultimate pouring good money after bad. Half of the streets we have today, half of the roads we have today are not going to be here 50 years from now. Like they just won't. The bridges will not be here. The interchanges will not be here. And and this is bizarre. People have a trouble getting their mind wrapped around this. Yet everybody who has trouble getting their mind wrapped around this can think of what it looked like when we walked away from the core of our cities. We just walked away from these places, yep. ordered them up and said, this is not what Detroit's we right there. We can, we can yeah. just go look at it. We can go see it. It's not a, it's not a difficult case study to examine. So you look at this and then what you recognize is that there is no discernible pattern between the neighborhoods that make it and the neighborhoods that fall apart. Hmm. And so what we need to do as a public project is actually work in this bottom-up incremental way and the places that start to coalesce and those will have, you know, physical attributes, but they're also going to have cultural attributes of people being willing to work together. Uh, the places that start to coalesce into success, those are the places where we make our limited investments. Those are the places we triage. So if neighborhood A says, we're a bunch of NIMBYs and you're not allowed to build an accessory apartment or a duplex in this neighborhood, but neighborhood B says, hey, we welcome corner stores and we welcome duplexes and we welcome all kinds of uh, investment, and I'm a city and I can only fix one neighborhood. I got to decide between A or B. I'm going to pick the one that is embracing others. I'm going to pick the one that uh, has upside potential from an investment standpoint. I don't think that's a hard choice to make. Yeah, it is going to leave us with... It's going to leave us a lot of mess. Lots of abandoned yeah. crumblings. I mean, I guess no matter what we do, that's we're going to end, end up there. But geez, what a... I mean... If you think that landscape is vast and soulless now, just yeah. like project your mind ahead 50 years and imagine it crumbling and falling apart and, and largely abandoned. Whew. If we learn something from Detroit, which I think we should learn a lot of things from Detroit, but if we learn something from Detroit about that transition, there really needs to be an industry of suburban salvage more than anything, mm. right? Like, um, you know, instead of having your house go to nothing, we're going to like purchase it and salvage it at some point. <laughs> strip it for parts. Yeah, strip it for parts. That's exactly what we'll do. Strip it for parts. Because like that wire has value, you know, yeah. the, the, you know, some of the other stuff has value. Yeah, we're going to strip it for parts. <sighs> pretty, pretty bleak. But it is bleak because what we built was stupid, right? Yes. I mean, I think a lot of us would like to save ourselves from like, I, okay, <laughs> I didn't go to college. I knocked up my girlfriend when I was, you know, 17. I have a drinking problem. I, 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 and now I'm 45 and I got my life straightened out. That's great. Like from that point on, do good things, right? right. But that doesn't make up for the fact that you, you kind of made a series of bad choices for a couple decades, you know? Like you got to deal with that. And I feel like as a society, we made a two and a half generations of really bad decisions. Well, America is so good at uh, honest self-reflection and mm-hmm. coming to terms with its own mistakes in a mature and clear-sighted way. So that shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> what was it, Churchill? We'll always do the right thing after we've tried every other option. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's that quote is starting to sound a little tinny to me. M- much like Obama's arc of history, I'm like, well, 
win though. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, we tried everything bad and we're still trying it. When yeah. when's that uh anyway, let's talk politics for a minute. You um you know, or at least were last time I, I checked in a, a self-described conservative. Um, you know, I don't have to sort of belabor the uh, the evolution of the of the right in America in recent decades and, and of the Republican Party. Among many, many, many other things, we have seen it now become basically explicitly pro-suburb, right? And instead of implicitly, it's now, you know, saying Joe Biden's going to come Take your suburbs. Yeah, no, he's he wants to kill the suburbs, right? <laughs> it's put yeah. its flag down in the exurbs, and you know every everything else going on. So, I wonder. I know that small C conservatives like you, sort of pro urbanist conservatives, exist. I know <laughs> that you that the species exists. Where is your political home what what has become of you what do, where do you make of your own sort of political location at this point and trajectory there's a really good book that was that no one's read um by a guy named blake pegankoff and i interviewed him on my podcast a while back i can't remember the name of the book but he only has like one or two and they're both on the same topic so he helped me understand this because I had long ago, I mean, long ago, like mid 2000s, walked away from the Republican Party and said, I, I don't, you know, I may have conservative tendencies, but this, this branch of national politics and local politics being nationalized doesn't make any sense to me. I've never embraced the Democratic Party because there's kind of a, a central you know, flip over the chessboard every, <laughs> every, every now and then kind of, you know, uh, individualism to it that I've, I've always kind of struggled with the idea that every problem needs a, needs a big top down solution that reworks everything. And that, that impulse has always not been something I could see in myself. Well, this is a kind of old school Burkean, uh, conservatism you're talking about, right? Just yeah. have some, have some respect for the accumulated Accumulate wisdom. Wisdom that's written into communities. Right. Here's the interesting thing, and this is where Blake's book uh, really kind of helped me become comfortable with this. It, it is, by the way, called Rebooting Our Political Operating System. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I looked it up. What I found is that I could have better conversations that were more productive and more operative with people who were far left of center, but who were very bottom up than I could have with anybody who was conservative when they were like at their core top down. The bottom up person who understands and is very like environmentally sensitive and understands ecosystems and understands that kind of thing, to me, I find really enlightening. And, and I've learned a lot from people like that. The person who cares deeply about uh, social justice within the neighborhood that I live in I have learned to disassociate them with a national, you know, social justice campaign run from a top down to drive votes. And I've learned to listen to them with compassion and empathy because really, quite frankly, they're talking about my neighbors and humans and, right. and I do love them and I do care about them. I feel like, you know, what Blake's book describes is a political spectrum that doesn't go left, right it goes more quadrants, top-down versus left-right. Hmm. And when you do that, what you find is that the left and the right have a common cause politically. Democrats and Republicans have common cause in top-down action. 
And that is the thing they agree on the most. And that's where they can find consensus. And I am at ultimately at the end of the day, a bottom up person. And I find a lot more to work with on the political left from the bottom up than I find in the political right, which has become very, very top down. The bottom up left, you're talking about stuff like, you know, cooperatives and yeah. things like that, citizen uh, councils and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's, it, let me say it this way. A cooperative is not where my sensitivities lie, right? Like, like the people who found cooperatives and work in cooperatives, they, you know, and, and do other kind of left of center, bottom up things. They're motivated by things that are different than what I feel like I'm motivated by. But I find their work inspiring. I find their work adjacent to mine. And I find that we can collaborate really, really well. And I respect them and I respect where they're coming from. I'm sensitive to other things. And when, when I can ground my sensitivities in a neighborhood level, a bottom-up way, in, in the humans that surround me, my things that I'm sensitive to, I can express those in ways that what I find is that people who are left of center really understand and appreciate. And even if they don't agree, they at least respect. When it gets to the big top-down project, we have a hard time having a conversation. And so I, I have kind of divorced my own reading list, my own sensitivities, my own uh, you know, view of the world from the top down. I just don't spend a lot of time on it. I let it be, and I put my efforts into, uh, into this bottom-up project. And it's you know, we started this conversation with you saying something along the lines of tension and, and with everything going on in the world. And I said, we got to have a lot of hope and joy. The bottom up gives me a lot of hope and joy, particularly in other people, particularly in people that I, I'm not, I'm told I'm not supposed to agree with. Yeah. This reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you've been following James Fallows. Yeah. You know, he's flying around in his little plane, yep. visiting small towns and, and coming away with, you know, very much the same thing you're saying. Like, if you're looking for a place away from these intractable, maddening national debates where there's actually some consensus and good things happening, you go to these little sort of mid-sized towns that are kind of out of the national spotlight and there's all kinds of good stuff happening. I think that's true. I will also say this. I find the same thing in large cities. Hmm. Uh, in New York City, if you talk to a true New Yorker, they will describe New York City as a series of neighborhoods. Right. They don't describe it as a top-down system. They describe it as a series of neighborhoods, each with their own culture, each with their own attitude, approach. And to me, I find the same exact kind of, uh, you know, interaction with each other in a place like New York City at the block level, at the neighborhood level that I do in, in you know, a city like mine of 14,000 people. Yeah, I just wonder, you know, we seem to be moving nationally into a period of conservative dominance, at least for the next few years. And well, there's you a say lot of- that, and I, I would actually say the opposite. Really? Yeah. No, we, I was having this conversation with someone today, and I said, you know, if you are, if you are left of center and you are plugged in nationally, you can go a long, long, long time without hearing an authentically conservative message delivered well, you will only hear caricatures of conservatism. But if you are a right of center, unless you want to not listen to the radio, not watch TV, not go to the movies, not go to college, not participate in civic society, you're going to be bombarded continuously with left of center messaging. You just will be. And 
you might say like, well, the Supreme Court is very right. Okay, I get that. You know, it's the way the the, the kind of ping pong balls fell in terms of turnover. And you can complain about, you know, political maneuvers. And I, I get that. I respect those complaints. The reality is, is that we're, you know, we are culturally top down a very left of center project. Well, this is the great contradiction, right? As we seem culturally center left, but the Senate is structurally right. <laughs> the Supreme Court is structurally right. Now through gerrymandering, the House is structurally right. The, you know, we keep getting conservative presidents that lose. Lose the popular vote, right. So when I say dominance, at, at the very least, they're very likely to control all three branches of the federal government uh, for at least some period of the next uh, decade. And it seems like it's going to be a very long time before Dems get a trifecta back. And it doesn't seem to me, given the character of the current GOP, that they're just going to let blue cities merrily <laughs> do what they want, <laughs> you know, implement sure. progressive policies. So I wonder if there's any kind of new political coalition to be had based in good city making. Yeah, that would be my hope. I mean, really, that would be my hope. I will say I have been around long enough now. I'm 49. Me, me too. Oh, okay, good. We're, we have the same like timestamp on our yeah. cultural. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, I've been around long enough where I have experienced the highs and lows of one party dominance, you know, like, oh, we won everything. And then, oh, we lost everything. And the reality is, is we celebrate the new deal and the hundred days of FDR. That's never happened again. And I don't think it can happen, right? It's not, we don't have, you know, we will, we will have to have a different form of government for uh, the type of like hegemonic thing to, to occur. Re Republicans had control of everything uh, just a few years ago and they got zero things done and they got zero things done because they, you know, and they are the party of organization, right? Like Democrats fight each other. Republicans line up and vote for things. They still couldn't get anything done. And I, I think what we've reached is we've reached a point where at the federal level, there's really not answers to any of our existential problems. They, <laughs> The, the answers have to be evolved out of local conversations and local action. And so we, you just see like, you know, is Obamacare a bad bill? Yeah. Is there a replacement we could come up with that would be good? No. So like, what, what do you do about that? You just complain and try to get people out to vote for you so that, you know, you can pretend you're going to do something. I, I know people get frustrated because they want the federal government to work. I think we don't appreciate that the federal government is designed not to work. It's We are designed to have a very limited federal government with power concentrated in states and really concentrated in neighborhoods of people. The one thing I would want to throw into that, yeah, and, 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 I'll, and I'll get yelled at if I go this whole interview without mentioning it, <laughs> is, is uh, climate change. And I guess, do you see bottom-up reform in cities moving fast enough or being dramatic enough to get a handle on greenhouse gas emissions. In other words, I mean, I can envision a lot of good things coming out of bottom up, but it's real hard for me to envision climate change coming under control without some centralized top-down action. Okay. L let me, let me make this a fair question. So we have option A, which is some type of uh, top-down action to address climate change. 
We have option B, which is bottom-up action to address climate change. And option A and option B are in a race against each other to see who can get to where we need to be. What I'm going to suggest to you is that option A has zero chance or near zero chance of getting to the finish line. And people can argue with that and like say, well, if we just got like an overwhelming number of people elected, look, the, the most dedicated to climate change president that has ever been is just done a gas tax holiday for six months. <laughs> right? Like we're not, we, we're, we're not at some like tipping point where people are serious about it. And they're not. The best thing that the number one, people ask me like, what's the number one strategy we can do at the local level to build a strong town? And I'm like, A, go out and plant trees. Like street trees are the, the lowest cost, highest returning investment that can be made. Hmm. The number two, get people walking and biking. Build a culture of biking and a culture of walking. Number three, fill your parking lots with stuff. Get rid of parking lots and fill them with things. <laughs> Amen. Now you tell me if your strategy was we need to get the right people elected, they need to have the guts to pass the right package to do the right stuff so that we get some action on climate, you know, so we get electric cars and we get like whatever, whatever your, you know, package of solar panels and what have you is, or we can make a bottom-up choice to emphasize communities that plant trees, get people walking and get rid of parking. Which one's going to be further along the race a decade from now? I don't even think it's close. Oh. The Strong Towns approach actually can get done and actually scales. Scale is the question though, right? I mean, these are all these local fights. I mean, one of the things that when I look at the strategy and I think about it scaling that sort of causes me to despair is that e each local community is different. The dynamics are somewhat different. It's just battle after battle yeah, after battle after battle. Yeah, but I'm, I'm telling battle. you, so at the end of World War II, we didn't have to convince people to move to the suburbs. Like they didn't have to be like a national program saying, this is good for you. You should do this. I know you don't want to do this, but you should do it. People did it in mass. They wanted it. And I'm telling you, people want walkable neighborhoods. They mm. want corner stores. They want good sidewalks. They want street trees. We're not selling at Strong Towns anything that people don't want. People right. want this in droves. They'll pay extra money for it. They fight to live in these places. They go vacation where, where it exists. They go vacation in them, right. We just don't deliver it in the marketplace. And I'm saying, make that switch. Right. We will deliver this in spades. And it will scale big time because everybody in policy understands, like, this is what people want. Well, I hope, uh, I hope you're right about that. And uh, maybe we'll, ch we'll check in in a decade and see, <laughs> see whose strategy <laughs> failed worse. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not, you know, saying there should be no top-down action, but I'm just saying I feel like what I see happening with the progressive project is – 98% of our energy put into trying to win the next top-down election to get the results we want. Right. And 2% of the energy put into recycling our, you know, uh, Aquafina bottle. And <laughs> what I would like to see is 2% of our energy put into, you know, this chess match of gladiators at the federal level. And 98% of our energy put into making places better. Because we can, you do that and like, it's a revolution. Everything changes. Great. Well, all right, Chuck, thanks so much for, uh, for all your work and yeah. uh, thanks for coming on and talking. Thanks, friend.
Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.